After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hi, welcome to the Mind Rolling webcast by a couple of mind rollers. We're going to keep trying to define what the hell we're talking about, but uh, we'll get it. Uh, and it's certainly moving from one thing to another. Is that nature? Then we surely are that. Um, well, we, we, we've been talking about our experiences in the, from the 60s into the turn of the decade, into the early 70s, and where we were at, and all of our influences, and transforming experiences, acid, the whole music of the time, the whole nine yards. But what something did happen in the late 60s, because uh, I remember you telling me at one point, that, well, talk about oh, Frank, well, Frank Zappa. Oh, Frank Zappa, yeah. Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention used to come to Boston more than they came to most places. I don't know why. Of course, they came from, you know, California. But I got to know Frank because I had the TV show you know, countercultural, and he happened to see it. So he, when we called him up uh, at the Holiday Inn on Beacon Street, he said he would do my show. So we did an interview with him. I did an interview with him. I was really excited about it because the, there was nothing quite like the mothers. They were just disruptive and talk about changing your consciousness. They were madmen, but very skillful, brilliant musicians, actually. So Frank agreed to do my show, one-to-one -one interview. And I was, it was 68, and it was the time when you know, the Beatles and the Stones, the whole British thing, was still kind of predominating. Except mm. for, you know, Buffalo Springfield, the birds, those kind of things. So it came out into the studio. We did it in this huge Studio B at WGBH, a really vast studio with just two chairs looking at each other. And uh, at that time, I didn't know him. It was very intimidating. And he sat down and I sat down. And before the thing started, I just said, hello, Frank, good to meet you. It was really like that. Hello. It was very gloomy. And then I introduced my show. I said, this is Walter Silver. This is David Silver. I'm really honored to have Frank Zappa here. And he goes, oh, you're British? <laughs> I said, well, uh, yes. Quite timidly. And he said, so do you like the Beatles? Well, what are you going to say to a question like that in 1968? And I said, oh, yeah. Mm. He said, I fucking hate the Beatles, okay? Oh, I mean, with God. that look on his face, you know. I said, well, I'm sorry, you know. So the conversation started off in this very contentious oh manner. And by the way, he was pretty serious because he was basically saying, what is this? We've got great musicians. I mean, me and Captain Beefheart and Commander Cody and the birds and everything. Just in California, we were acing it. What's this about Liverpool? You know, he was really quite hurt by the fact that the British, and when he found out that I was British, he thought he'd take it out on me. It so yeah. happened it developed into a real friendship. And I, every time mm. Frank came to Boston, we used to have dinner. 
An interesting thing about the 60s and 70s is you could never really predict what anything was about. Frank was a strict anti-drug person. Mm. The most way out musician you could imagine. Not only was he against drugs, but if anybody did in his band, he would fire them instantaneously. Right, you know? I remember. Yeah. And uh, the times I spent with him were all about Stockhausen and Stravinsky. Yeah. He was such a musicologist, you know. Mm. We, we used to play Beefheart all the time. Oh, Beefheart was the greatest. Yeah. If, you're out, if you're out there and you haven't actually listened to something of Beefheart, it's not music from the past. It's music from the future. No, it's the weirdest music I ever yeah, heard by it's far. Great. And still did something to you. Absolutely. You know? You know, the music of that time uh, was so interesting because you had that British thing, then you had that Southern and Northern California thing, mm. and the Detroit thing happening very heavily. So soul music and British invasion music and California sort of drug music all was moving at the same time. Mm. You know, Otis Redding was just as likely to be played on FM radio as, as Neil Young or, or uh, The Zombies. It was all mixed together, and that's when FM radio really was great, yeah. you know. I had a bad experience at the station, the radio station back then. With yours in Montreal? In Montreal, yeah. Oh. Terrible experience with, a, unfortunately, a member of your country. Oh, what happened? British. Is it, do, should people hear, is this going to be good? Yeah. For I don't, this don't. is the anecdote show. We're yeah. doing anecdotes, <laughs> shamelessly. <clears throat> um, Led Zeppelin. Oh, your friends, um, they came to Montreal and did a big concert, and we were on the air. I actually had hired my brother, who was a fanatic R&B fan. That's all he played or listened to, Otis and all, right? So we went to see Led Zeppelin, and we absolutely hated it, both of us. <laughs> like we were, you know, running into... How could anybody, you know, there's Hendrix, there's Mike Bloomfield. I mean, you know, there's like incredible blues. I mean, this was what? This kind of, anyhow. <laughs> I actually, when I listen now, I go, wow, that sounds great. No, I like it were, now way better than I they did were then. And, nice. You know, but um, unfortunately, my brother had a show and he said, you know, I was at this Zeppelin concert last night at the Forum. It was the worst shit <laughs> so happened that Jimmy Page happened to be riding in his car in Montreal because they were staying over to do a television show. And he heard this because it was the only major rock and roll station there. And he heard my brother do this. He flipped out. I mean, completely went mad. And I had to go and, and denounced him when they went on this television pop, you know, Dick Clark knockoff kind of show in Montreal. <laughs> And denounced my brother <laughs> <laughs> and the radio station. It just goes to show you can't well, be in any media and think that no one's listening. Yeah, right. No, you no, never I mean? do that. Never, never, never. <laughs> Anyhow, I had to go to Robert Plant's hotel room. And he actually was staying in an apartment. They had rented an apartment. Huh? And uh, Jimmy wasn't there. I guess he was so pissed. And I had to go and with another DJ from England uh, who he, who knew, they knew him and he knew them and he was a huge fan. He got, you know, he was just playing them left and right. Yeah. I had to go apologize. To I mean, seriously, formally on the radio, I have to say, you were sorry. No, too. I formally went to the apartment to him oh, personally oh, right. oh, and oh. apologized. Of course we apologized on air <laughs> for that bro of mine's air. What was he thinking? 
<laughs> well, I guess he was just being thinking honest. wasn't part of what was going I, I on see. for us I, then, I, which uh, brings up uh, oh. other subjects about thinking wasn't very part of our yeah, like very wasn't very much part of our lexicon then, wasn't it? Thinking, thinking. No, because everything that was, was moving us towards saying everything is overthought, everything's on the intellectual level. That's where we're in the trouble we're in. Let go, turn on, tune in, drop out, run away, whatever. But it wasn't thinking in the old-fashioned sense because i think a lot of us felt that uh, a much more visceral and heartfelt response to the, your life was going to get was going to make you happier and all seemed that. to do a lot of not very bright things back then though. oh you mean oh you're not being company you're saying we were just clueless yeah we were clueless thoughtless yeah. selfish yeah some of that was going on Fortu again fortunately by the turn of that decade i mean you and i happened to be again we we were very lucky to have these beings come into our lives and help cha change you know i mean i it, it which reminds me this is way jumping on yeah. this thing but this when is you, all mind rolling yeah or mind rolling mind rolling yeah, yeah. by the mind rollers um when i went to india and i lived with neem karoli baba at one point now we're we're talking about a powerful change like i say we were going through this transformative change you know where we were stopping being too stupid selfish self-centered and so on because yeah. you know we were actually starting to think there was a way to live what we learned in, in, in on these acid trips right anyhow um at one moment my dad decided to come on over you know oh. he wants to see how we're doing Bottom line is, Maharaji, who had, Ram Dass had given LSD to, twice, nothing happened, said to me, did you give him the medicine when he got there? I mean, you're talking about an entrepreneurial businessman. He might have smoked a joint by then. Anyway, he told me to give him, take care of him while he was in India. Get him some acid. If you can believe that, being said by this, you know, this being. And we uh, go, was this idea? He said to me, give him the medicine while he, take care of him. Give him that medicine. Oh. My father was a tyrannical egomaniac. Okay? Yes. So, and I've described this in other places uh, in detail. But suffice to say, he had a death trip in Benares where people go to die by the Ganges River. And his life after that was never the same. And we were able to become friends. So this happened in those early 70s. Talk about his life absolutely categorically changed. He was a bomber pilot in the Second World War, and he oh. thought he wasn't afraid to die because he was the only one who lived in his squadron at the end of the war. Oh. And so talk about transformation and the power of that energy and... Um, so you have, in one sense, the era that we were in and, and hit how so many things lent itself to this transformation. And then, and then of course, there, you know, we talked about these beings and we talked about them out of not necessarily needing to be in a body to relate with that which is, you know, no different than who you are inside. That's intellectual, but that is the truth. Um, and these transformations really happen. You know, and uh, I, I guess that's uh, the thing is they were negativized though, because what we would say would people would say were you know, very uptight about this. You know, people have acid flashes, and 
Well, yeah, but it wasn't flashes. It was all the time. Because once you did that in the right way, uh, your entire life was like, yeah, you still made mistakes and still had problems on a more trivial level. But there was something that crept in that never went away. And that to me was, some, and I think Ramdas has said this on numerous occasions, which is when he's been asked, which people ask him all the time, even now, do you regret having been, you know, doing psychedelics and talking about them and everything? And he always says, no, it was the doorway that helped me, you know, leave the, the unsatisfactory life and behavior that I was doing. And so, but, you know, he always says, you know, you have to be very thoughtful, not thoughtful, um, it's fastidious about the way you take them and all of that. Mm. Your father, I'm interested to know, because that wasn't normal. I, I didn't know Say one other person whose father or mother, anybody out of the generation, who had the, you know, cojones to take this. What I, I mean, when he took it, okay, he took it. What was the transformation like? I mean, how long did it take him before he, he threw away his old ego identity? You know? We were horrible. My brother and I, yeah. and uh, my who, partner who was my wife-to-be, we um, gave it to him, and we were on a houseboat on the Ganges that was swaying back and forth, <laughs> the river and the mist and the whole nine yards. People all along that bank is people washing, praying, doing their laundry, dying, being born, being christened, uh, cows, dogs, it's, everybody's there. The whole and, and then dolphins in the actual river. There were well. dolphins in the There's river? There's river dolphins. I've never heard that before. Yeah, in the Ganges. Yeah, you see My them. goodness. And hopefully these bodies, there's enough money for enough wood so that the bodies completely burn because when they don't, the dolphins eat the remaining and dogs and everybody. So, yeah, this is the scene. Can you imagine that... Yeah, dear no, old dad's I, taking acid on the <laughs> roof of this houseboat, looking over the river, and we are sitting around watching him with our eyes, like, Gunk, how you doing? <laughs> Anything happening yet? You know, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. So we were terrible. We, you know, And then he was like reading. I remember he, he started the trip by reading, and he got all into what he was reading at the time. And then that stopped, and he was just sort of... S we felt like, okay, maybe he needs to walk, right? So we took, took him off the boat and started walking through the alleys of Benares. Now, they're these tiny, I mean, you're talking centuries and centuries and centuries. It's like going back, you know, tiny alleys with people living in temples and, and products being sold and saris. And I mean, it's just, you know, you go through different, you know, Muslim neighborhood and then, woo, and then Hindu neighborhood. Whoops, they're not, you know. Yeah. I mean, I've been in riots in Benares where I had to hide out. I mean, you know, it's a charged place because of all that. Yeah. And we took them through there. The first thing we came upon was a dead donkey, you know. <laughs> God. And then it just died. And then a dead man. And his body was there and they were people were passing by and throwing coins on it. He's obviously very poor. And the idea, I guess somebody was there, I don't know who was, maybe it was a relative, was taking care and they were trying to collect enough money to properly burn the body. So he came upon, the, so it was all death. He had a big time death trip. I mean, that's what he needed, you know. I mean, it was unbelievable. And after that, 
market. I've never seen such a market change that lasted beyond the time that he had the trip. I mean, it totally rewired him, you know. And then, you know, he went back, and uh, before he went back to America, he saw Maharaji again, and who told him everything about his life. He had a farm and animals and what happened to I mean, stuff that nobody could know, and he broke down, and that, you know, and that was the beginning of the end for him. He actually came back six months later. After we had come back to Canada from India, he went back a few months later after us and spent a couple of months there mm. with my sister and so on. He took my, you know, my whole family, basically. So he was absolutely transformed in that moment and that stayed. I, mean, I, you know, very miraculous, especially if he had known my relationship and, and so no, on. No, because so by the time I knew him and quite a few other people, uh, he is very, uh, he was not affable, but tremendously to the point and very, if you asked him a question or he wanted to, he was very forthcoming. There wasn't the slightest bit of, of tightness and very wise. Everybody, I think, acknowledges that he, if he just put his mind to it, he could solve a problem for you. He certainly did with me. You know, so it stuck. Yeah. Forever. Yeah, no, that whatever, certainly, because you met him after that. Yeah. Now, around this time, some of these beings from India, some were teachers, some were called gurus, some were swamis, and so on. Um, mm. They were coming, and they were spending time in the States, and many people were being... Um, you know, magnetized, basically. Some were fairly righteous, some were not, maybe, and taking advantage. And most, for the most part, were teachers. I don't know of a being like a, you know, um, Anandamayi Ma, Neem Karoli, Baba Shirdi, that kind of a no. being that, that, that was there. But do you have some recollection? Because that's also formative when these beings started to come over. Um, well, Mukt Swami Magdananda was one of those, and um, because I knew th that he was revered by people that I liked, loved even, I um, had darshan with him, which consisted of, what actually happened was I gave a lecture uh, somewhere, and after the lecture, two guys came up to me very sort of formally and said, we listened to the lecture, and my lectures at that time were about uh, LSD. They were about, you know, how to use it and what the fourth really? dimension and LSD, mm. I think is what it's called. Anyway, they, they were there and they said, we, we want you to meet our, our Baba and the, he's going to be on the Upper West Side in Manhattan in three weeks. And I went. And there were about um, only 30 people in a small room and we chanted and meditated. He didn't, speak, he not, didn't say a word. Now, for those of you who might not know, Muktananda looked more like Miles Davis. Than a, <laughs> he had dark glasses exactly. and uh, was extremely cool looking, you know. Uh, but what people used to talk about with him was this thing called Shaktipat, that he would maybe tap you on the head or smack you on the head or do something, and you would have this sudden onrush of Shakti or divine energy and, and, and feel completely transformed and so on. So that was the kind of thing that was floating around and I knew about it. So I was kind of excited to go. Interestingly enough, nothing happened to me that I that seemed any different from any other experience, even at the supermarket or watching TV. Absolutely nothing. So what do you do with that? Hmm. I didn't feel good about actually telling people this because it sounded like I was automatically saying, that's all nonsense. There's no hmm. transference of energy, none of it. 
I knew that I got to know by that time that if it wasn't the exact right teacher with the exact right student, you might as well, right. you didn't see or feel anything. But at the same time, you couldn't then dismiss them because you had to be open to the karmic fact or that maybe they're just not for you. Yeah, and that's so much of how it is and how everything is. I yeah. mean, what happens to you in life even, you know, once you see that, you see it's perfect for unraveling what's needed for you to unravel. Yeah, because you see people with, with Sachinana, particularly in New York, at the um, Integral Yoga, and I was present with him a few times, and people were just over the top when they were with him. I mean, they'd just be, you know, and I never, I thought he was amazing to look at, and definitely, you know, had um, knowledge, and was a very beautiful being. Mm. I didn't know mm. anything else, though. I, I couldn't feel, I wasn't able to gain anything from it. And that's another part of that era, which there was sort of no grounding for anything. You sort of, it was like, you know, catch as catch can. You hear about a teacher, a guru, you go. It wasn't as if there was a yoga journal or, a, not really, not till later. New Age Journal came at the end of the 70s, I think. Yeah, something, something like, like that, that. yeah. Maybe enough said. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, this is, very much what started to happen where more and more of these beings came over came over and uh, that started to affect a segment of the culture one might say mm. um, I mean today you can't I mean geez you can't you wherever you go you can shake a stick so to speak and you can have access to almost any of these traditions from mm. from the east from Tibet, you know, I mean, it's just amazing. But back then, every time somebody came over, it was kind of a unique thing, and it, and it gathered us yeah. together, and that started to create um, Western satsangs. And, you know, certainly, for instance, there's one, and I have to mention this for people to, to check out, because, uh, again, I'm going to refer to my friend Duncan, and um, he is always saying, yeah, if you think of someone, I want to read that book, or I want to, you know. And here's um, one of the things that came back from the East that we were very close to, people that had gone over to see Maharaji, was um, insight meditation practice, which was um, really, I would, it, it, it's um, Hinayana Buddhism, and it's, this particular practice was in Burma, was developed in Burma and was very strong there and teachers came out of there. There was one Indian teacher in particular named Goenka that many of us met and yeah. Munindra was another. And uh, some people came out of that tradition, three particular people, and started two major centers on the East and West Coasts. Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, and Jack Cornfield. And they, and here's my recommendation, folks. These people are absolutely, if you get a chance to, to be at any of their retreats or whatever, even a, even a talk, I know Sharon gives talks in New York, please take advantage. I mean, some of the most straightforward, practical ways to deal with uh, the unraveling, so to speak, and certainly deal with mind, emotions, and all that stuff. Uh, and gain true insight. I mean, it's a it's a practice that I I think I I understood that uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama actually had given instructions to have novice monks use that as a basis, which is unusual. 
Hmm. Um, but bottom line is uh, that's a high recommendation. So people, so some of this stuff that came back from the East started to be really um, a major contribution to the culture and mixed in. Hmm. Buddhism, Buddhism now is very much a West, you know, a, the Buddhism that's here is really being, um, it's not westernized, but it's being integrated into the Western psychology and, and dealing with, uh, it's particularly the scientific elements. You know, His Holiness is working with people like uh, Danny Goleman, you know, who's, who's, who's uh, one of the group that went to, uh, to India to see Maharaji and, and working on these kind of uh, investigations that I think are, are really super and, and bring a lot more people in, get more people involved, um, which is a great thing. But so this started to happen in those days, and we uh, we basically took took a big advantage of it. And I guess our next huh. intersection here um, is around kind of when when we came back from India. And of course, that's there's a huge story there of all of us going there. The interest, the probably the most interesting to people is that. A number of these people, Danny Goldman being one of them, Krishnadas being another, who, who's a chant, chants around the world and um, is is uh, really doing it in the way that we were given in India. I mean, he's really, and Jai Utah as well. Mm. Um, so people from different walks have made different contributions from the East that are very present now in, in the West. So, you know, that's certainly... Uh, a part of what happened when that disbursement happened. And of course, Ramdas is the, the biggest example with Be Here Now because it, it affected millions of people, literally, um, and goes on to this day, which another subject we'll take up later. But um, what, uh, just what are your, your ideas and well, recollections of, of this starting to pull together different uh, satsangs, different communities, spiritual communities, and how they were interfacing with each other and so mm. on and so forth. And uh, It still seemed a little bit sort of, you know, random. For me it was. Because I know that Trungpa was... was major. Was, yeah, that's a major influence, absolutely. I mean, and, you know, you can only really... Read up be, him, by the way. Uh, Trungpa Rinpoche. Yeah. Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. Or Meditation much, in action. Yeah, pretty much any of the books in his Shambhala, Shambhala publications came out of, originally out of Trungpa and Naropa, I guess. But again, you know, there was nothing institutionalized or, or in any way regimental, regimented about this. I don't know how I came into contact with Trungpa. I have no idea. I don't remember. But I know that every time he came to Boston, every time he came to Boston, I would do anything to see him. And then I would go to Vermont because he had a place in a Tale of the Tiger in Vermont and one in, in Colorado, I suppose. Uh, yeah, so I would, you know, drive up to this little village in Vermont, and he would take over a little church there, and talk, and and drink a lot of sake. I didn't know. You know, we were there. So yeah. did you did you know Ramdas then? This is because no. when we used to go there, it was nineteen. 19- because it was when we came back from India, I used to meet Ramdas up at Tale of the Tiger in 1973. It was a little after that. Ah, so you came after that. Definitely. Yeah. Right. It was right. a little after that. But I do remember this, that I, going up there and hearing him talk and the way he used humor and 
Americanisms and American culture, even whatever he picked up within this amazing, I mean, the word amazing doesn't cover it. Hmm. He was a master. Absolutely. Uh, and, but he would, you know, was dressed in a Harris Tweed jacket and slacks and a nice tie and very well kempt and everything. But he was just as authentic as it could be. And it was, a, it was really gratifying to see how many people were drawn to him. Um, of, you know, without any conflict, really, with anything else. It wasn't like people who were um, following the works of Ramdas or, or even older back, Alan Watts and Paul Reps and all that other tradition of... Well, Alan was very close to him, yeah. you know. And, yeah. uh, you know, at that time... And? Well, yeah, Ginsburg was very... That's when he oh, yeah. started his Buddhist practice. Like yeah. yeah, it was definitely through this. So that's a big marker. It's funny that we have these... Uh, it is. I didn't know that. I mean, uh, we didn't really talk about that over no. all these years. So it's it's interesting how uh, we yeah, I don't, jump I in even, and out of, of I can't things. even honestly do it justice as to what I felt when I was at a Trungpa... A talk, or and they, they, they were interactive to some extent. There were certainly questions. He used and, to make fun yeah. of us. Did you know that? No. Yeah, we'd be in the audience. We, meaning Ramdas, uh, being the personality that Trump, uh, you know, would would jive. That yeah. he'd start talking about the. Oh yeah, and people, you know, that are on this, you know, they go to the east and they bring this back as if they've, you know, just become enlightened, and suddenly everything is love and light. <laughs> and he'd go, yeah. right, Ramdas? Oh, <laughs> he was constantly jiving. No, he was a real, that, that, you know, oh, trickster. I mean, oh yeah, yeah, well, and of course yeah. there was many things about him that were, uh, shall we say. Uh, n- not really understandable by virtue of the level of being he was in terms of the duality of the stuff he was involved with, with uh, uh, sex stuff and all that. But that's neither here nor there. He was, uh, and to this day remains, an yeah. important an important teacher in, in, yeah. in the whole pantheon of these people who have come from the East. So, yeah. again... I mean, we took advantage of this stuff. I mean, we really did at the time. I mean, we really took advantage, and and that became more and more of our focal point. You know, I mean, earning earning the uh, grub as uh, Tuari told that story. <laughs> the grub, <laughs> yes, right. Earning your rotis, as they put it in India, um, was certainly part of the equation. But yeah. um, but there was a way in which we really. We wanted a balance. I mean, you know, I didn't personally, I, I was in the radio business. After I got back from India, I worked for the Canadian Broadcasting Corp and, and did, you know, programming for them. But it wasn't front and center anymore for me. Front and center was really developing more of, uh, you know, a, an identification with soul rather than role, as Ramdas says so much. You know, yeah. I mean, that's really a good way to put it. Yeah. Now, um, that is a whole other discussion. Um, yeah. in, from you know, from moving from the roles that uh, we find ourselves in, and all sorts of roles. It doesn't have to be just your job, mm-hmm. and moving into a into soul. I think that we would have to say. Is that this is going? To, this was primary to our to the arc of our lives. If you could say anything 
about what it is. And we went from point A to B to C to D as we went through all of these things that we've been, you know, talking about here from the late 60s into the turn of that decade. It, it really was, you know, the development of identification with who we really are. And how much of that was happening at any given time maybe was, you know, a, a little microscopic. And But as time has gone on, certainly there is absolutely an evolution. And uh, I guess that's one thing we can offer up. But, uh, yeah, let's, uh, we'll talk about that next time. Okay. We're mind rollers. <laughs>